It can be hard to see the challenges that people we work with every day are going through. I'm Holly Robinson-Pete. Join us on The Visibility Gap, a new podcast presented by Cigna Healthcare. Download it wherever you get your podcasts. You know success when you see it. Or you think you do. The people in the spotlight. But what about those small business masterminds who succeed at making their money work harder? They do that by having a business bank account with QuickBooks Money which now earns 5% annual percentage yield. Making your money work as hard as you do, that's how you business differently. Learn more about QuickBooks Money at quickbooks.com slash 5APY. Banking services provided by Green Dot Bank. Member FDIC. Only funds and envelopes earn APY. APY can change at any time. From Silicon Valley to Wall Street, the promise and perils of artificial intelligence are playing out on the world stage. But what will the next phase of AI adoption look like Which companies from big tech to startups will dominate? And where do the risks and unintended consequences lie? I'm Emily Chang. Join me at Bloomberg Tech in San Francisco, May 9th, to answer many of the industry's burning questions. Alongside SNAP's Evan Spiegel, Xbox president Sarah Bond, OpenAI's Brad Lightcap, top researcher Dr. Fei-Fei Li of Stanford, and many more. More details and just a few tickets left at Bloomberg.com slash TechSF. This is Bloomberg Law with June Grosso from Bloomberg Radio. There was a quarter of a million dollars for an appearance by Leo DiCaprio, a nearly $400,000 bar tab, millions for paintings by Monet and Van Gogh. These were just some of the expenses that high-flying Malaysian financier Jolo racked up and paid for with millions siphoned off in the 1MDB scandal. Jolo is nowhere to be found, but former Goldman banker Roger Ng can be found in the defendant's seat in a Brooklyn federal courtroom, on trial for conspiring to launder money and violate anti-bribery laws in a scheme that looted billions from the Malaysian 1MDB fund. And Ng's former boss and star Goldman banker, Tim Leisner, can be found on the witness stand, now the star witness in the prosecution's case against Ng. Joining me is Michael Weinstein, chairman of the White Collar Criminal Practice at Cole Schatz. So right out of the gate, during opening statements, the defense started to attack Leisner, calling him a double bigamist, saying he uses people and he's trying to use Ng to get out of jail time. Is that approach effective? Well, I think they're trying to disrupt the narrative that the government has tried to lay out. Specifically, they're trying to say that his testimony can't be trusted. They're trying to make him the fall guy. They want to point out that he's motivated by self-interest. And they're trying to undermine his credibility as a whole. And by doing that, it enables them to attack everything he says and essentially water it down so the jury doesn't give it as much weight as you would expect. The jury's going to get a picture of him, of this guy who lived this lavish lifestyle, you know, meeting with kings and queens, marrying a former supermodel, who turns against Ng, the man he called his best friend, to save himself. But does that make any difference in whether they believe him or not? Not really. In the world of criminal law, there are very few people who end up not turning against other people. And so the situation you have here is a boss who has turned against one of his underlings and one of his associates. In the context that we have here, where he was asked and participated in this type of significant fraud, 
it's not a surprise that he's turning against others to try to save himself. And the jury honestly has to evaluate whether they believe him or number two, whether they give him credibility for coming forward, acknowledging what he did was wrong, and all the while turning on his former associate. The jury's gonna look at him and ask a couple questions. Is he coming off as sincere, candid, forthright? Is his recall of the facts and the way he articulates the facts sincere in how he presents them so that they're credible? Does he just come off as someone who's trustworthy? And those are all issues that a jury is gonna have to evaluate. You often hear similar attacks on the witnesses who flipped. But it seems like most juries do end up believing them. That's true. Often, when someone flips, the prosecutor will preempt the defense cross-examination on just that very line of questioning by saying to them, you're here today under a cooperation agreement. You're here today cooperating because if you testify honestly and truthfully, you help yourself. And obviously, someone on the witness stand is going to say, yes, that's true. So a juror is going to hear that and independently still going to have to assess whether or not the people are lying or whether or not they honestly made a mistake, admitted to the mistake, and are testifying to try to help themselves. Because at the end of the day, most jurors, just like most people, if they can help themselves by throwing someone else under the bus, I suspect people would do that. How important is it and how does it play with a jury that he hasn't been sentenced yet? Well, I don't think a jury is going to think that's a significant factor. The judge will probably explain to the juror there's reasons for that that you don't need to focus on. I think what the jury is really going to focus on is, number one, is he coming off as credible? Is he coming off as personable? Is he acknowledging his own faults and his own wrongdoing? And even though we don't know what his jail time could be or is, is that really relevant? And does that have an impact on what he's saying about his knowledge about the situation? I don't think most jurors worry about whether the guy's going to jail for one year or 10 years. It may play some factor, but I think the jurors just trying to assess the witness's testimony more broadly and more generally uh, to see whether it has some credibility to it more than, you know, looking at it that he's going away for 10 years and therefore you can't trust him. So the jury's heard about the millions of dollars that were siphoned off and were frittered away on lavish parties, yachts, jets, etc. But it wasn't Ng who was doing the spending. It was Jolo. Correct. So even though the defendant wasn't doing the spending, that does not absolve him from responsibility. Because the issue in the case is not that the spending was inappropriate. It was how they got the money in the first place. What happened? What transactions occurred? And what did the defendant do or not do to facilitate and aid those transactions which caused those hundreds of millions and billions of dollars to flow through in order to be ultimately used in the manner you just suggested? I think what the jury is going to look at is, did he get any money? The answer is yes. Why did he get that money? And did he get the money honestly by working legitimately, or did he get it because he was part of a larger scheme? And I think that's the the challenge that the defense attorneys are going to have to come to and answer that question and give a satisfactory answer to the jury before they turn on their own client. Some of the other evidence they have is $35 million in his wife's account, but his wife was never charged. So how does that play? Right. So it can play both ways. It's, it's um, uh, two sides of the same coin. The government's going to say, 
it shows that the defendant was knowledgeable enough about $35 million that he didn't put it in his own name. And that shows his recognition of the deception that he was trying to uh, foster in this situation. The defense is going to say, no, he was entitled to that money and he put it in his wife's account and nothing untoward about that. The reason that she wasn't charged is probably because she was not aware of um, the monies. Even if she was aware of it, her husband might have said to her, honey, this is just as a result of me having a banner year and me doing a series of transactions where I got paid a lot of money. She may not have known, and it's likely she did not know, as to the source of those funds and the fraudulent nature that those funds originated with. I know you don't know all the evidence that the prosecution has, but does it seem like the case will stand or fall based on Leisner? I think he's going to have a significant impact as to whether or not the narrative that the government is trying to describe holds. And if his testimony survives a very uh, vicious cross-examination, and at the end of the day, his view of the world and view of the facts and his ability to articulate the defendant's involvement in the scheme, I think that's going to set the tone for the remainder of the trial. So the defense lawyers have portrayed Ng as, of course, he's Leisner's deputy, a bookish banker, and he was the first to warn Goldman compliance about the financier, Jolo. So obviously he doesn't have to take the stand, but is there a lot of pressure on him to take the stand to explain this all away? The answer is yes. Uh, There's always a concern and a consideration that a defendant, a client, is going to take the stand. Sometimes clients say, I want to take the stand. I want to tell my story. I'm the best person. I'm the best advocate to tell my side of things. But on the flip side, it's not a one-way street when a client gets on the stand or when a defendant gets on the stand. You have to remember that the prosecutors who are just immersed in the facts of the case and who know all the ins and outs and all the documents and all the text messages and emails and WhatsApp communications are going to come at him ferociously, just ferociously. And as a result of that, his narrative, meaning the defendant's narrative on the witness stand, as perfect in his own mind as that may be, may actually backfire because the prosecutor is able to pick that apart and really create doubt as to how honest he's being in his story. So as a person who's been on uh, both sides of this, how do you decide whether or not to take that risk with a defendant? Yeah, it's a lot of late nights. It's a lot of reviewing what evidence has come in prior to the time where you have to make the decision. It is a game day decision um, as to whether or not a defendant's going to take the stand. Some of the things you look for is whether or not your story, your defense has come in through other people whether it's through cross-examination of the government witnesses or whether or not you can put other witnesses on your behalf on the stand to tell essentially your client's story, but not having your client on the stand. Also, for purposes of documents that you challenge, are you able to challenge those documents before the jury in order to chip away and articulate what your client's version of the world is and to tell your client's narrative? It really is one of the most difficult decisions and recommendations a defense lawyer has is when you're sitting with a client and they want to tell their story and you really have to engage with them and evaluate whether or not they're going to do more harm than good 
as a result of the testimony on the stand. It's a very difficult decision. We always say it's so rare to have a defendant take the stand. And yet in a couple of high-profile cases lately, we've seen the defendants take the stand. In Elizabeth Holmes and the Theranos trial took the stand, and the jury still convicted her. But then you had Kyle Rittenhouse take the stand and got acquitted. So what makes the difference, defendant or is it case? Well, I think a defendant who's on the stand who really, truly shows raw, um, unbridled emotion, I think a jury just being humans, that that has an impact. That resonates with a juror. Um, So I think with the Rittenhouse trial, you saw a, a, a young man who literally and figuratively could not convey his story because he was so emotional about it. And it came off as a very genuine um, narrative about his view of what happened. That was very compelling. On the flip side, you have uh, Elizabeth Holmes, who came off as almost prepackaged. And she had done so many interviews and in the previous 10 years and had done so many types of public speaking that her story um, was able to be picked apart by the prosecutor by juxtaposing what she had said previously by what she was saying on the stand. So I think when it comes to people coming on the stand, you really have to know the facts. They have to be genuine. They have to look like they're not playing fast and loose with the jurors. Because if a juror feels like you're playing fast and loose, they'll hurt you. They'll turn off and they'll convict you, you know, almost immediately. So Ng is the only one from Goldman the only one standing trial in this multi-billion dollar fraud. The jury is going to see Leisner, who is off the hook. Leisner's named former Goldman executives who knew about the bribes and the kickbacks. They haven't been pursued. Joe Lowe has disappeared in the ether. Doesn't Ng start to look like the scapegoat here? So the answer to that is to a degree. I wouldn't say Leisner is off the hook. He had a plea deal, and he's had to give back, I think, 40 or $50 million. So I think the answer to the question is, you're right. I think the defense has to present the defendant as someone who is simply being scapegoated here. And that's the defense narrative. It's hard to argue, though, because he benefited financially so much. It's also hard to argue that because Leisner specifically yesterday detailed the involvement of the defendant in many of these key meetings and decisions. And so it's not as though the defendant had no involvement. I guess the question is how much involvement. So yes, they can make him out to a scapegoat, but I'm just not so sure that's going to carry the day. Would you rather be the prosecutor or the defense in this case? Well, I loved my, you know, many years being a federal prosecutor uh, I loved it, but I think the challenge of being a defense lawyer is um, unsurpassed. Uh, you have a, a lot of flexibility. Um, you have a lot of th- a lot of tools you can work with, um, but the power of the government is is unrivaled. It, just the amount of um, resources at your disposal uh, when you work for the government it, it is really remarkable. So, both experiences were very rewarding. I liked both. Any final thoughts? I think Goldman uh, has been dragged through the mud, obviously. I think they paid back a lot of money, and it will be interesting to see how they try to rebound from this and change their internal protocols and policies and procedures to really prevent this from happening in the future. Thanks for being on the show, Michael.
That's Michael Weinstein, chairman of the White Collar Criminal Practice at Cole Shots. You know success when you see it. Or you think you do. The people in the spotlight. Athletes, actors, artists. But what about the people behind the scenes? You know, the ones who make it all happen. The lighting engineers, the sideline photographers, the caterers. They're small business masterminds. And if there's one thing they have in common, it's making their money work harder. That's why they have a business bank account with QuickBooks Money, where they are now earning a generous 5% annual percentage yield. Yes, 5% APY. Making your money work as hard as you do? That's how you business differently. Learn more about QuickBooks Money at quickbooks.com slash 5APY. Banking services provided by Green Dot Bank. Member FDIC. Only funds and envelopes earn APY. APY can change at any time. You know, it can be hard to see the challenges that people we work with every day are going through. Invisible struggles like stress and burnout, caregiving for a loved one, or being misunderstood. But insight, awareness, and empathy will help us better see the issues they're dealing with. And that can make us and our companies healthier, too. I'm Holly Robinson-Pete. Join us on The Visibility Gap, a new podcast presented by Cigna Healthcare. Download it wherever you get your podcasts. Hi, I'm Ron Kraszewski, Chairman and CEO of Stiefel. Financial Advisors, if you're not growing your practice, you're losing market share. Stiefel is a growing, entrepreneurial, advisor-centric firm built for successful advisors like you. Imagine having the resources of the largest wirehouses and the support of the boutique shops, but none of the bureaucracy to get in the way of you serving your clients. At Stiefel, it's your business, your book, your clients. I always tell the advisors we're recruiting, I want you to come to Stiefel and double or triple your business. Most of them laugh and shake their heads, but I'm serious. Don't take it from me. Take it from Stiefel's number one finish in J.D. Power's 2023 U.S. Financial Advisor Satisfaction Study. So there's a reason why 148 financial advisors joined Stiefel last year. Come join us and find out why Stiefel is the firm where success meets success. Visit www.choosestifel.com. Stiefel Nicholas and Company Incorporated, member SIPC and NYSE. This is Bloomberg Law with June Grosso from Bloomberg Radio. My name is Kaniz Dupree. I'm an exoneree who spent 30 years in prison for a crime I didn't commit. I was locked up for 22 years. Spent half of my life, man, basically in there from the age of 28. I'm 35 years old, and I just got exonerated after 16 years of wrongful imprisonment. The Innocence Project is well known for getting people wrongfully convicted of crimes exonerated through DNA evidence. But what happens to exonerees after they're released from prison? Do they get compensated for all the time they spent behind bars? Well, lawsuits to get that compensation can be a very long and a very expensive process. But now litigation funders are making bets on wrongful conviction cases, and some are willing to give exonerees as much as $1 million in upfront cash. Joining me is Bloomberg Law's Roy Strom. Roy, in wrongful conviction cases, do the exonerees have to prove their innocence, or do they have to prove the prosecution or police did something wrong? They do have to prove that there was misconduct. It's a constitutional tort claim, basically, that their rights were taken away by wrongdoing on the part of police or prosecutors. And it's a pretty tough legal burden to hurdle. About 1,200 exonerees have filed 
these types of civil lawsuits, and about 51% of those received some type of monetary recovery, and about 27% were unsuccessful. The remaining suits are still pending. Give us a refresher course on what litigation funding is and how much of it there is out there. Litigation funding is basically when investors put money into a lawsuit in a type of deal where they'll be compensated really well if that case wins, and typically they won't get anything back if the case loses. And it's a very attractive asset class at the moment. It currently has nearly $12 billion in assets under management among a big group of these litigation funding companies. And how long have they been funding wrongful conviction cases? People I spoke with said that it's become much more popular recently that wrongful conviction cases attract funding. One of the reasons is there's just a lot more of them being filed. So the number of exonerees has spiked since 2014, and it's the type of lawsuit that garners interest because the plaintiffs, these wrongful conviction victims, have a need for money, and their cases go on for a long time, and there is the prospect of a big settlement or verdict at the end of the day. So in most cases, do they give an initial payout to the exoneree? Yes. Usually the exoneree will receive some form of upfront payment. The numbers I heard could range as high as a million dollars upfront. Other funders were more likely to give a smaller number. One company is giving $100,000 upfront and charging a much lower interest rate. But other funders will provide monthly or, you know, every other month a sort of stipend to help these people live. I know there can be some spectacular multi-million dollar awards. Still, a million up front strikes me as very high. Definitely. A million dollars is a lot of money. And I think if a funder gives someone a million dollars, they're pretty confident their case will result in an award. Some of the funders I spoke with said that they would not give that type of money, in part because they didn't want to be involved in handing someone a million dollars who's just coming out of prison and might not know what to do with it or who would be better served in their mind by having installments of payments rather than just a giant lump sum. If the exoneree loses his case or her case, what happens to that initial payout? They keep the money. If the case loses, they get to keep whatever it was that they got up front. I take it the interest rates vary a lot. So the cost of the money is really what I found to be one of the bigger sort of controversies in the area, which is that funders can request two to three times their initial investment. So in the example where an exoneree receives a million dollars up front, if they get an award, they might be paying $3 million back. Some funders think that's too much. And one funder I spoke with said they cap the return at 100% or less than 100% of their investment if there's an award. And then there was a new company that was getting into this as a sort of charity that would give $100,000 up front. And no matter how long it took, if the case was successful, they'd only ask for 8% interest on that. So they would only get back $108,000, regardless of the time or the monetary award that was ultimately won. That $100,000 goes to the yeah. exoneree. Do they give out more money than right. that to fund the litigation itself? No, most of the lawyers who do this work uh, operate on contingency fee basis. So the lawyers, too, are incentivized to win. Um, and the money from the funders 
typically goes directly to the plaintiffs, the exonerees. You know, some of these cases are more than 10 years old, and they're having to go back and get evidence that's old. People's memories fade. It sounds very difficult, but yet there have been a lot of winning cases. There have been, and in part it's because a lot of the evidence gets collected during the stage of this person's criminal you know, background where they've been trying to get out of prison. So a lot of times the evidence was collected, and that's the evidence to get them out, and that's the evidence that will ultimately be used in the civil case. So some of these exonerees will go to lawyers, and they'll have a pretty solid case set up already. Others, it's a bigger battle if they are in the position of needing to collect that evidence or find people who will buttress their testimony that the police did them wrong. Are the litigation funders giving the exonerees better deals than they normally give in civil litigation? So the funders in civil litigation, a lot of the returns are similar in the wrongful convictions space. They ask for a pretty, uh, pretty much the same return. And some funders I spoke with said that they weren't willing to cut deals with exonerees based on the fact that they're really a sympathetic figure. It's still an investment opportunity. There's still too much risk for them. And so they do ask for similar returns that, say, a corporation would get if if they invited an investor into, say, a patent infringement lawsuit. Fernando Bermudez used litigation funding, and he eventually received about 215000 in advances from the litigation finance companies. He said he ended up paying back more than 400000 He got more than $12 million eventually from lawsuits, but yet he said that he he felt exploited. Why does he feel exploited when, you know, obviously it worked out so well? Right. Well, his case ultimately worked out well. He did make a lot of money down the line, um, but it took six or seven years for him to get that money. And in the meantime, he was released from prison. New York State fought. His compensation claims for spending time behind bars that he never should have. So he was forced to turn to these litigation funders, and he was in a state where that was his only option. And it's more expensive money than you might get on a regular loan. And he felt that it was more expensive than he should have been asked to pay, uh, even though he acknowledged it was really his, his best option. The terms were still pretty high. And there are also states that have compensation systems set up. That's right. So there's 36 states and there's a federal law that provides money to exonerees in sort of a no-fault way. Those laws provide much less than these civil lawsuits that end up sometimes in these multi-million dollar figures. These laws in many states provide maybe $50,000 for every year spent in prison. But those two are not a guarantee they require a lot of administrative work, and they do require you to prove a legal term called actual innocence. And in the end, uh, a study from a law professor, Jeffrey Gutman, found that um, about half of the years that exonerees spent in prison in states with those types of laws ended up not being compensated for because the person couldn't prove their actual innocence or because it had served so little time 
that it wasn't sort of worth it for them to go for the money. Um, or in some cases, the state fought the claims, like in the case of Fernando Bermudez. These states aren't always willing to admit that they owe these people the money. Thanks, Roy. That's Roy Strom of Bloomberg Law. And that's it for this edition of the Bloomberg Law Show. Remember, you can always get the latest legal news on our Bloomberg Law podcast. You can find them on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and at www.bloomberg.com slash podcast slash law. And remember to tune into the Bloomberg Law Show every weeknight at 10 p.m. Wall Street time. I'm June Grosso, and you're listening to Bloomberg. From Silicon Valley to Wall Street, the promise and perils of artificial intelligence are playing out on the world stage. But what will the next phase of AI adoption look like? Which companies from big tech to startups will dominate? And where do the risks and unintended consequences lie? I'm Emily Chang. Join me at Bloomberg Tech in San Francisco, May 9th, to answer many of the industry's burning questions. Alongside SNAP's Evan Spiegel, Xbox president Sarah Bond, OpenAI's Brad Lightcap, top researcher Dr. Fei-Fei Li of Stanford, and many more. More details and just a few tickets left at Bloomberg.com slash TechSF.